Hello and welcome to another edition of Here's the Pitch. It is sponsored by Masses Restaurants in St. Louis. There's five locations and you can find them at stlmasses.com. If you're driving through St. Louis, you watch this interview and you go, hey, I enjoyed the interview, Brad, and now I want to have some pasta. That's what you do. Go to stlmasses.com and figure out where you're going and look at that menu. But today, very excited as um, I've got somebody that I see every Sunday. Uh, I follow him on Facebook. I see him doing his thing, and I said, I wonder, I wonder if Bill Kinnison would actually come on my podcast and, uh, and share some uh, Sam Kinnison stories, some Bill Kinnison stories, some uh, family stories, and look at that. There he is, looking handsome as ever. It's Bill Kinnison. Hello, Bill. Even in person, man. Good to the see you. People did a really great job. It's really good to see you, um, and I really do appreciate you coming on. I, I have to tell you that um, to do research, I always kind of go back and look at some videos, and I, I have not laughed more than I did while I did research for this interview, so I'm sure you'll understand why in a little bit. But uh, tell us a little bit about what you're up to. Again, I, so I see you on Facebook. I think you know it's one of those things where I'm like, hey, you have mutual friends. So I go, I watch, and I see you doing your thing on Sunday mornings. Tell us a little bit about where you are, what you're doing, and, and um, spreading the word for everyone to, to hear, and anyone can go see you, I guess. Well, we... Uh... Actually, it all started, uh, I, I did the eulogy for Robin Williams uh, service. And uh, at the end of that service, I had people coming up, people that I knew and people I didn't know. And uh, one was a uh, comedian, Argus Hamilton, which I don't know if you're aware of him. Uh, he's an older, older person now, and he just, I love writing, uh, reading his uh, comedy on, on uh, the Internet every day. And anyway, he came up, and he's the son of a Baptist preacher in Oklahoma. And uh, he came up and goes, Bill, you should you should be back in the ministry. And I thought, oh, that's awful nice. Thank you. And uh, then, you know, different ones I didn't know come up and goes, you know, man, you should you should be a preacher. Well, we owned a, a theater in Upland, California, 400-seat uh, community theater, that we did plays and and concerts and different things in. And we had we rented it to a church on Sunday morning. And I got to thinking about it and kept thinking about it. And then I thought, I told my wife, Sherry, I said, you know, if they ever leave, I would consider starting a church. And uh, so they left. And uh, so we opened a church. And we was there exactly one year and did great. Our first service, we had over 170 people. And... Uh, but at the end of a year, it was just too tough, man. We had to, after a show on Saturday night, we had to tear down the set, set up for church on Sunday morning. And if we were doing a play, we had a 2 o'clock uh, play on Sunday afternoon. We'd have to tear it down, tear down the church stuff, put back up the set. And so after a year, I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And so, but we had a lot of people. And I thought, you know, just to patronize them and, don't feel like I just quit on them. We'll do a 30-minute thing on the Internet. It'll, uh, it'll peter out, and everybody go back, to their, go back to their life. And so that's what we did, except it went the other direction. And now we run uh, over 3,000 viewers that watch us. And uh, it's not a uh, – I think the name really says it. It's a gospel according to Kennison. It's a gospel according to me. I'm one of the 
probably one of the few preachers that will admit we all we all interpret the Bible according to us. And so I thought, why beat around the bush? This is how I see it. This is how I'm going to do it. You've watched it. And it's really more of a uh, motivation, I think, and a life-changing uh, success methods and techniques than it is preaching. And, uh, and so that's what we do on Sunday morning. We've had great results, and a lot of people helped, and uh, I'm happy doing it. And that's what we do. Yeah, is the easiest way to find it, just go to Facebook and search your name, right? Is that the easiest way, or is yeah, there a better way? Go to, go to, yeah, it's open to the public. You don't have to be my friend. Uh, you can go to uh, Facebook, Bill Kennison or Sherry Kennison with a Y, either one of them, and uh, you can watch it. And then we have a lot of people that share it. Uh, you also can watch it on YouTube once the program is over. Uh, they put it on YouTube, and you can watch uh, actually not only this week's, but all of them, all of our programs, I think, are on there. And you can watch that way. And we've, uh, we've garnered a lot of attention. I mean, some of the things, uh, probably the least percentage of groups that I have watching it is Christians, <laughs> and uh, especially a hardcore. We were, Sam and I was raised Pentecostal, so uh, we danced and spoke in tongues and fell on the floor and all that kind of stuff. I'm sure that... Uh, they're not getting excited about the things that I say, uh, but we have everything from everyone from atheists uh, to Taoists. I still haven't figured out what that is yet, but we have several Taoists that watch us. We have uh, uh, Islamic, Buddhist, uh, you name it, and uh, LDS. Uh, everyone watches us, and uh, and we usually get a very good response. Every once in a while, we'll get. You know, somebody that doesn't care for it. And I make it clear, I think, in my programs that uh, this isn't for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're super religious or you think you're super spiritual or anything, you're probably not going to enjoy my program. So uh, I'm not up there. We don't ask for any money. I'm not up there to garner a bunch of followings. I just I just give what's in my heart and give it out. Yeah. Well, obviously, it's family business. You guys have done this in your family for so many years. Um, but I, I am curious about the time where, uh, obviously, famously, Sam was doing this first. This is what he was doing in the late 70s, and, and he comes to the family and he says, guys, I think I want to do stand-up comedy. So at that point, are you still doing, your, are you still preaching at that point? And just, this is sort of a watershed moment, I guess, for the whole family, because, you know, Sam goes off, moves, I guess he moves to LA, right, and starts working out of the comedy store and, and things start working. What what was that time like for the family to see kind of someone leave the nest and kind of get out of the family business? Well, what what uh, really brought it, brought it about was is uh, uh, like you said, it was the family business. Our dad was a preacher. Uh, my mother thought she was a preacher, and uh, and so we was raised in that kind of an atmosphere. I hated church. I hated God. Uh, didn't really like it, and I never planned on being a preacher. Uh, went to college, uh, had a great job, and my dad had never encouraged me ever, or any of us ever, to be in the ministry. And uh, but he did tell me one time, "I want you to go to college, once you get a career, and then if you're not happy, preach." So I thought I'll be happy. Anything that I don't have to do with church, I'll be happy. Well, I don't know if he prophesied or what, but 
sure enough, I had a great job as a branch manager over 12 offices in Indianapolis. And um, I remember I'm washing my dishes and looking out the window one day and I'm going, I'm not happy. So I went back to Peoria, moved back in the church we were raised in, and I had a brother, Richard. That was the really the star of our family. He was a uh, he was a walking miracle. He was born blind and uh, severely mentally handicapped. At the age of uh, at thirteen, he couldn't count to ten. He couldn't spell his name. He couldn't dress himself. And he said an angel appeared to him and told him that healing was inside of him and. He laid hands, he said, on his head and on his eyes, and he could see. And uh, he was two years older than I was. He ended up graduating from high school with me, caught up in the school system and uh, graduated with me. And uh, like Sam was a natural in comedy, Richard was a natural in uh, the ministry. Ended up being the best evangelist I'd ever seen. Well, I come back and I asked Rich, I said, hey, you want to go in the ministry? And well, that was his dream. And so we started out uh, in a little place. I remember our first speaking engagement was a little place in Cameron, Wisconsin, which had 240 people. And our fourth revival that we ever preached, we was running 3,000 a night. And uh, hit right out of the gate, was extremely successful. Well, now Sam... Uh, he ran away from home at 14, and uh, two years later, I he actually heard uh, Richard and I on a radio broadcast in a church in Oklahoma City. He was hitchhiking, and a truck had picked him up, and I had, was channel surfing, and so what saying was, wait a minute, wait a minute, go back, go back. And so it was his brother. So he called me, Oklahoma City. We hadn't seen him in two years. We had, be honest with you, we didn't know if he's alive or dead. And uh, so he uh, he joined up with us and decided he wanted to be a minister. But I think it was really more, more uh, he was named after our dad. And, and he used to tell me it was like Julian Lennon, who ended up being a good friend, uh, doing it for dear old dad. And I think that's really what it was. And uh, he wasn't very good, to be honest with you. Uh, his weakness was is that he didn't have a very good stage presence, which when you see him in comedy, that's that's unbelievable. You just can't imagine Sam being on any stage and not having a stage presence. But he felt like preaching was giving out information. And I used to tell him you have to do it in, inter- in an entertaining way. And he just couldn't he couldn't buy into that or wouldn't. And so he got married uh, two years into the marriage. He. Uh, caught her in an affair. They ended up in a divorce. And as Pentecostal preachers, that's the worst thing that can happen to you. Uh, You cannot preach and be divorced. Uh, They used to say, if you can't take care of your own house, you're not fit for the house of God. And so I was pastoring a large church in Rockford, Illinois. He came up there right after this happened. And he was as low and as devastated as I'd ever seen him. And he told me what happened. And so I told him, I said, well, Sam, I want you to forget that your brothers are preachers, your dad's a preacher, your friends are all preachers. Look down in your heart. Take some time. Look down in your heart. Find out what you always wanted to do. Well, he took about three seconds and said, I always want to be a stand-up comedian. 
And so I said, well, set a date then. And after that date, you're never going to preach again. Because if you do, you'll keep going back to it. Uh, he did. Uh, he ended up, uh, he found out, which is kind of comical now, that they were, there was a club or a bar, actually, in Houston, Texas, that uh, was uh, uh, going to teach you how to be a stand-up in a week. And uh, so Sam went down to Houston, and uh, I went down about six weeks after he'd been doing comedy, and he was a natural. Uh, one night, Rodney Dangerfield walked in and uh, and caught Sam's act, and I when he came in with his entourage, I told the bar bartender, I said, I'll, I'll pay for whatever whatever they want. And so he told Rodney, Rodney had me come over and sit by him in his, at his table, but not knowing I'm connected with Sam at all. Sam's on stage. And he turns around to me and said, Hey, this kid's an effing genius. So he's going to make a big one day. I don't know how long it's going to take him. He's not too disciplined, but, uh, uh, he's going to be, he's going to make it. And, uh, so, I introduced Sam uh, to him after the show was over, and they become fast friends. Rodney and I became very close friends. And it was Rodney uh, six years later, that, or five years later, that gave him his break in L.A. and put him on uh, the HBO Young Comedian Special, which we, we both blew off. And even when we went, we thought, nothing's going to happen. We get a free trip to New York, and six minutes isn't going to change Sam's life, especially with the kind of comedy he was doing. And um, the first night, they they did a run through with before a live crowd, so the cameras could all set their angles and and get all the sound and everything right. And uh, Sam cleared the room. They walked out on him. Everybody in there, crew probably would have walked out if they weren't getting paid. He comes off the stage and he tells Rodney, "said I can't get going in uh, six minutes." Rodney says, "Tomorrow night you're going to kill, Sammy. I'm telling you, tomorrow night you'll kill." Uh, tomorrow night came, Sam killed, and uh, that was it. <laughs> that 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 was my question. It's so great that you went. That was exactly where I was going because the, the this is okay. So I was eight maybe when I saw this. I, my dad loved the Rodney Dangerfield. We we got HBO probably in 1983. Uh, I remember my dad falling off his chair because no one had seen anything like this. But I think it's it's amazing that you said this because because my thought was okay. You walk out of there. Do you guys say? All right, you know, we've made it, but it sounds like you said, eh, this is not going to work. No one's going to see it. But it really was. I mean, most comedians always talk about their time on Johnny Carson, the first time on Johnny Carson. Everyone says that from the early 80s, late 70s. But these Rodney Dangerfield specials made a lot of people as well, and it definitely made Sam Kinison. So you guys, I mean, did it blow up right after that? Because it, it's, I'll never forget it. I'll, I mean, it was amazing. And it, and then is this when you start kind of managing and traveling or how did, where did your kind of your work with him come? Actually, just be, just before that, maybe, a, well, that, that didn't air for, oh man, probably three or four months. But what had happened was, is I was pastoring a large church and I was getting ready for Sunday morning service. I was in the shower and, uh, Something in my heart, I think God just spoke in my heart and said, it's time for you to do something else. I had been flying out there. If Sam ever felt like he had something going, I would fly out and check it out. And if there was something, try to negotiate it, but there never was. He was just, uh, you know, that material back in that day you know, wasn't going to make it. 
and Sam wasn't going to compromise. And I don't, I don't think Sam ever thought till he made it, he was going to hit it. And, uh, but I remember I'm driving to church and, uh, I'm thinking, well, I got to tell my wife. And I thought that's not going to be easy. This is her hometown. We got a great church and we're, we're loving it. We're living the life. We're young people. And, uh, so I remember driving and going, uh, sharing, uh, today's going to be my last service as pastor. And I said, uh, we'll still be here probably for a few weeks till we figure out what we're doing, but, uh, I'm not going to be pastoring after this morning. And I figured her, if you knew my wife was going to go, no, 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 this isn't going to happen. We're staying here. We're pastoring this church. Uh, instead, she, all she asked was, is what are we going to do? And I go, well, Sam's wanting us to, has been wanting us to manage him full time. And uh, we got enough money to last us a couple of years in California. So uh, let's go out and try it. And so uh, we went out and uh, he hit, this aired about, oh, maybe six weeks after I got there. And uh, when he aired, when it when it aired, it he automatically that week I signed a uh, after the week after him air being on there, we signed a four special deal with HBO, a four record deal with Warner Brothers, uh, two appearances on Johnny Carson. I don't know how many appearances, four or five appearances on David Letterman, uh, three appearances on Saturday Night Live. This is all within a week after that six minutes. Now, I've been going out there and having agents and managers and stuff come and see him, and they would double over. And then when they get all through, I go, well, let's do some business. And they would go, we don't know what to do with him. <laughs> well, after seeing him six minutes on the HBO special, they all knew what to do with him. And uh, we were off to the races for six years. So. So, what part does what at what point does he start kind of living the rock and roll lifestyle? Was that always? I mean, before I guess when he was doing his early days at the comedy store in the early eighties, he was probably into some things there. And how hard was it for you to watch this happen as you're kind of you know with him at all times? And, and how hard? Because what amazes me as I watch, you never see him not on when he's doing his appearances. There's people that you can. Rock and roll stars who just slurring their words during songs, but Sam, I never saw like have an issue when he was on. Maybe the Howard Stern show, which we'll talk about in a second. But what was it like for you to uh, to just have to kind of deal with it? it was was it babysitting, or did you did you worry about what was happening? How how did that work in the mid eighties when when he was kind of doing? You know, it's pretty well known he was a partier. Yeah, I mean, the if TMZ would have been around back then, it probably wouldn't have been a career. Uh, I think our first thing was is that uh, Sam never he never had a drink till he was twenty five, and uh, seeing him down in Houston using the language and everything that he did. I mean, we grew up in a house that if you said "darn," you got smacked in the face. Uh, if you uh, said "gosh," shoot, any of those kind of things, that was way over the line. And and seeing Sam uh, up using the language and then his subject material and everything. I, uh, I remember down in Houston after watching a few times, he goes, what do you think brother? 
And I go, Sam, you don't have to, you don't have to use that language to be funny. And so this was the first time, but he said it to me many, many times afterwards. We're not in church, brother. <laughs> We're not in church. And so he had an addictive personality. And Sam could never do anything in moderation. So whatever he did, he was all out. Uh, when you talk about his life, his rock and roll lifestyle, he never changed. That was him before he ever made it. I remember Johnny Carson asking that question. He said, what's the difference now that you've made it and before you made it? And Sam goes, well, I can afford to party now. He said, back then I had to depend on everybody else. Now I can afford to, to do it myself. And so uh, it, uh, him getting up and doing a show, it made it very difficult for me because I couldn't go, dude, Look what it's doing to to your show. Look what it's doing to your career. And whenever I did say that the few times, he goes, read the reviews. He could he could uh, recover quicker than anybody I'd ever seen in my life. I made hundreds of dollars betting with the promoters and and the crew members and stuff in the venues we played that he couldn't do the show. And so I go put up put up some money. And the trick was, is if I could get him out there, they were going to get a great show because within three or four minutes, the adrenaline picked up, picked up and you seen him. So I couldn't tell him how bad it was affecting his career. I mean, the, the stories were, were true. You know, as I said on my program a few times when it comes up, stories about Sam was all true. You know, he did party like that. He did do, do those things. And um, I used—I told him a few times, I said, man, I'd like to know what it's like to actually manage your career because all I do is babysit your ass and make sure he got on a plane. I, I actually went to rehab for five months, uh, taking a drug hit for him. But it's probably the best thing to happen for both of us because when I got out, we had new rules. And the new rules was if you get on the plane, you get on the plane. I'm not going to. Not going to go around and babysit you and make sure you do this and that. I'll let you know what's going on and it's up to you if you show up or not. And uh, and he did. He did. And so uh, yeah, that was it. Yeah, well, I, and I mentioned the Stern appearances a few times. Did you were you with him at all these times? I mean, there's the one where he, what he's asleep. They they had to go call him and tell me about just kind of those times because it was really you get the sense of Sam. Like I said, the Letterman show was seven minutes. He had his act. Dave was funny and Carson, but here these are hour long interviews and you, it's in the morning, so it's early. He's been up all night. Um, tell me a little bit about the, the times uh, doing the Howard show because it, I think that also helped him too. I mean, he was a rock and roll comedian going on this rock and roll morning show. Yeah, both of them. When when he first uh, went on Howard, I remember we took a we flew a red eye for his first appearance, and and Howard did not like stand up comedians. And the reason was is that uh, they were never out, out of character, and so uh, and he you know and he he made that pretty clear on his program that you know he wasn't crazy about stand up comedians. Somehow uh, we got to where uh, we got where we could go on Howard Stern. Well, at that time he was only on two stations, and uh, but he was still the king of king of media. And so I remember we were flying there and. Uh, uh, on a red night, flying all night, and I remember Sam uh, really worried about it. Going, uh, dude, 
what am I supposed to do? He doesn't like comedians. Uh, he's the king of of all media, everything else. What what am I supposed to do? And so I go, well, Sam, if I was you, I'd go in and give it up to him right out of the gate. I'd, I'd tell him, you're the king. You're the king. And then I said, and just be you like you are everywhere else. Just be you. And, uh, well, Sam, again, can't do anything in moderation. So the first time he walks into Howard's uh, studio, he gets down on his knees and starts bowing. You're the king. You're the king. <laughs> and that just, that fed Howard's uh, ego. And, uh, and that's where it all started. Well, I hated New York. Not because of New York. I hated New York because it was not a good place for Sam. Uh, bars are open all night long. Uh, you know, it was just a trouble place for Sam. And then we'd always have to do, uh, he and Howard got to be best friends. And uh, so we always had to do Howard. And, and I, I just would shudder, you know, at that, knowing that uh, every every industry person in LA is listening to Howard Stern, even though they hate him, they're listening and, and they're hoping to God, their name never comes up. And, uh, and here's Sam, you know, that basically gets drunk every, every show he's been on there. And, uh, it was, uh, it was tough. Yeah. I was there for most of it. Somebody had to take him back to the room. Well, and, uh, yeah, well, I was going to say later on, much later on, Jim Carrey sort of blamed Howard for exploiting it. Did you did you ever find it ex- exploit? I don't know if the word exploit is, is a word, but did you feel like it was being an exploiting type thing that Howard may have taken a little too much and really enjoyed seeing, you know, a, a, a kind of a messed up Sam? Um, I think Jim Carrey and Howard made up on that, but it was something that was said and made Howard a, a bit pissed off. Uh, you talk about when Sam and Howard got upset with each other? Well, I mean, there was that. But later on, Jim Carrey said that, you know, Howard was expo- exploiting Sam and having him come in drunk was, you know, helping Howard's ratings and it wasn't really helping Sam. I love Jim Carrey. He's been a friend of uh, mine. And and I guess, I don't know if he was a Sam or not, but the first night that he was ever in L.A., uh, he's, he's a friend. I consider him a friend today. Uh, he's took vacations with us. Uh, he has uh, been, when my mother's alive, he's been to my mother's house in Tulsa and stayed and, and uh, good friends and everything. Uh, Jim, Jim says things that, that baffle me sometimes. Uh, that's one of them. Uh, I heard that and I'm thinking, what are you doing? You know, they were friends. I mean, if, if Howard would have been on a 5,000-watt station, Sam still would have done this. They, they were friends. I don't think either one of them exploited each other. Uh, Sam went on to promote whatever he was doing. A lot of times he just went on just to be with Howard. And Howard has Sam on because uh, the ratings, and, and it was great radio. So, no, I don't think either one of them exploited each other. Uh, I think maybe Jim... You know, a little afraid to go on Howard himself and uh, everything. I think, you know, Jim's, Jim's a very insecure person. And uh, I think his insecurity kind of come, comes out when it starts talking about things like that. 
Well, you did mention the feud Howard and, and Sam had there for a little bit, which was great radio once again. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that time because it, it was involved John Bon Jovi and, and he was jealous a little bit. That, tell me just your thoughts when this was happening. Well, I can tell you exactly what happened. I was there. Uh, Sam played Giant Stadium with uh, Bon Jovi, Skid Row. I forget who all was there. But Sam was the main attraction. 83,000 people with a microphone, if you can imagine that. Uh, we, we, knew, we knew John. We knew the, you know, the old band and uh, everything else. Well, uh, Richie Sambora was dating Cher at the time. So after the show was over, he invited you know, different ones to come down and, and uh, a party down at his house with Cher and everything. So we all went over there. And uh, Sam had talked to to John and the band, and their riff with, with uh, or Howard's riff with them was, is Howard felt like he, he had broke them. That he had, and he probably did. Uh, now they go to another radio station to promote their album instead of, instead of his. And so they got this falling out. So Sam's Mr. Peacemaker. So he's talking to uh, John and Richie and the rest of them, and, and he's going, uh, come on, man. Yeah, you, you and I will go way back, and uh, you know, let's, let's go in in the morning and, and uh, patch it up. You know. And so they agree. They'll go in with Sam in the morning. So he calls Howard. Sinead's brother. I got Bon Jovi and everything. We're going to be coming in the morning. They want to... They want to make peace with you. Well, Howard, his people get a hold of everybody, CNN, MTV, you name it. They're all there waiting for the big reunion of Howard and, and, and Bon Jovi. The problem is when it gets to be about five o'clock and we're down almost close to Atlantic City, I'm telling Sam and, and the rest of them said, hey, guys, we got to get in some limos. We got to go up there and, and do a Howard show. Well, then they go, we're not going. And so Sam's like, what the F are you talking about? I called Howard. No, we're, we decided we're not, we're not going to go. When I ha- Sam's going, well, I can't show up. If you guys aren't going, I can't show up. He'll, he'll lynch me. And uh, so none of them show up. But Howard blames Sam thinking Sam set him up that Bon Jovi never did tell him that they were going to go, but they did. Just at 5 o'clock in the morning, they changed their mind, decided not to go, and that's what the big rift was about. What they made up, which was great. I think the other big moment on that show, well, there's many, but was tell me about the time. Was he, was he asleep or he was supposed to come in and Jessica Hahn was around? and was there a hotel room? Something happened where he didn't show up, right? And they called and they, am I remembering this correctly? Or <laughs> I, you talk about for Howard show. Yeah. I thought there was maybe, well, maybe it was just maybe what it was. He missed, well, he missed the Joan show, right? Yeah. yeah. He missed the Joan river show. Okay. That came as close to ending his career as anything he had ever, ever done. And uh, we had done a show a night before he had been clean. We did a show, and uh, Howard come, or Sam comes in the next morning. Uh, Howard uh, orders up some champagne and stuff, 
And so Sam gets ripped. So afterwards, he, you know, goes has some Chinese food, but he's done. Now, I'm the call time was supposed to be at five o'clock. So that gives Sam plenty of time, you know, to sleep a little bit, get his head together, and do the show. Except after we get back to the hotel, uh, the Joan Rivers staff keeps moving it up uh, to two o'clock call time. Then it's a noon call time. So I tell them it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. If you want to go back to what was originally scheduled, the five o'clock call time, we're fine. He's not going to be there in an hour. I'm going to tell you now, that is not going to happen. Well, Joan is going out and she's uh, uh, entertaining the crowd until they can get Sam there. Problem is, Sam is not going to get there. So she'll, she comes back off her show and calls me three, four, five times. You know, where's Sam? And I go, Joan, I told you, he's not going to make it. If you want to do the five o'clock, well, I got an audience here. I go, then you should have told us uh, before now that you want a 12 o'clock call. And so I said, it's not, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. She goes back out, entertains some more, comes back. We're Sam. We go through this four or five times until I finally go, Joan, it's not going to happen. Well, I'm thinking, all right. Now I always rented a, uh, extra room under nobody's name for Sam. First, if he meets somebody he likes, he can go there. But if he also just wants to be away from everybody, nobody knows how to get hold of him, that's fine. Well, I go up and I get Sam moved from this suite to this room. I go back to my room and I'm thinking, all right, you know, I can relax, go have some go get a lunch or whatever. And, uh, cause we still got to do David Letterman that night. So I go downstairs. There is Joan at the office with her entire crew or film crew. And I'm thinking, Oh God. So I go back up to where Sam's room is just to make sure they don't find out where he's at. Well, we have this idiot security guy, And Joan knows me very well, by the way. She knows what I look like. She's talked to me many times. Her and my mother have went shopping. So she knows who I am. She puts this security guy that hardly speaks English on on camera as me. And uh, why did Sam miss the show? Uh, He had uh, a bad bad, uh, Chinese food. He's sick. He had bad Chinese food. And, I'm, you know, and then I see it later on. And then I'm like, what the hell is, is going on? Well, we don't, we don't make the show, obviously. Now I can't. I can't have Sam show up at David Letterman if, since he missed Joan Rivers because I don't know what she'll do. And so I, I call David, and David totally understands. That's cool, brother. You know? We'll schedule another time. So I said, all right. Well, it hits the fan. And we're getting ready. That next week, we're getting ready to uh, film Charlie Hoover. 
which is a sitcom starring Sam and uh, Tim Matheson, that was really a fill-in, and it did go for 10 shows as a fill-in. And uh, now I got Fox is wanting to drop him. Uh, he's a presenter on the Grammys. They drop him. American Music Awards. They drop him. I mean, all because he doesn't make the Joan Rivers show. So I remember Peter Chernoff calls me from Fox. And he goes, uh, why is a Sam, why did he miss the Joan Rivers show? And I said, well, they changed the call time. And, and so he wasn't prepared to uh, make it. And so he starts going, well, you know, we're reconsidering uh, uh, the Charlie Hoover project. And so I said, all right, it starts on Thursday. And I said, all right, that's all right. Uh, Sam will be there in costume, ready to go on Thursday. If you pull the plug, just write me a check for $480,000 because we have a contract. Nowhere in a contract does it say he has to show up for Joan Rivers' show. And then I remember I told him, I said, uh, Peter, uh, kind of refresh my memory. Didn't you fire this bitch? <laughs> and he goes, uh, yeah, and I go, and now she's running your your network? And he goes, she's not running my network. I said, well, it sounds like to me she is. She makes a phone call because he didn't show up to her over 65 geriatric crowd. And you're going you're gonna to try to put him out of business? So I said, it's up to you. I can't talk you into that. So you do what you want to do. And then I go to work on trying to talk to Walter Miller on the Grammys and... Uh, they put him back in the as a presenter and stuff, and, and uh, Walter's going, you know, I'm sticking my neck out, man. You better deliver. And I go, well, I think my neck's out on the line further than yours, Walter, but he'll be there and ready to go. So I end up getting basically everything back. And, uh, and we end up, long story short, we end up doing Charlie Hoover, and everything's fine. He does a makeup show. Uh, for Joan Rivers at our expense. And the funny thing about that is he's drunk off his ass while he's there. <laughs> so it was never boring with Sam. Well, I, this is, as I listen to you, I, I have all these thoughts. I think, okay, this sounds fun, terrible, uh, exhilarating, all these things um, as, as being the manager. And, and what I also think is he is making his shots. He's doing the appearances so you're getting him to the spot, and that I would assume he, in his mind, thinks, I, this is how I make my money. This is how I work. If I don't have a little hit of this or a drink of that, this is not going to work. I assume that's sort of how your mind was at the same time as well, right? Because I think anybody would say, well, you have to settle him down. But then if you settle him down, there's really no career. There's no Sam – no one wants to see Sam Kinison just kind of stand up there and, and sing because when he did sing, it was fun, but then he would scream and then – Right? Am I am I getting this whole dynamic correct? Well, you you probably got the part right on Sam. For me, I end up with shingles. <laughs> uh, end up in a divorce. We got remarried. Uh, my beautiful wife Sherry, and uh, and I uh, I took care of the business. I never did party. I was never a partier. Just I just never was. And it was difficult taking care of the a business with Sam. Uh, when he's supposed to show up 
for a meeting or something and never shows up. Uh, one thing I garnered was is that I garnered a great deal of respect in the business, even to this day, of uh, managing Sam and, and actually bringing him back uh, when he hit bottom. And uh, But it uh, for Sam, Sam lived for today. Sam always said that he would never see 40, and he ended up being correct. He died at 38. But uh, he lived for today, and, and we had uh, – I can't say talks. We had more of uh, arguments about that. He believed that the uh, ends justifies the means that it takes everything you go through to get to where you're at. So uh, he needed everything he went through to, to be on top. And I'm going, yeah, well, BS, you know, I'm the one that's working my ass off here to uh, get you to the top and to keep you there. And you're just partying. So don't give me this, this, uh, means justifies the ends but he, he really felt that way and so no matter what he did that was all right because it takes that you know if he partied and he used to tell me man if i if i come up with one routine it's worth it and so after he'd be on a three-day party I'd go well did you come up with any routines and stuff and uh but that that was his thinking process but it was uh it was stressful uh i enjoyed our first 40 city tour probably more than than anything. I mean, for one thing, Sam had been a loser his whole life. And to see him extremely successful, uh, I, I raised him. I raised my, my three brothers. They were, they were like my sons more than they were like my brothers. And so if you can imagine having a child that uh, you really think you're going to be taken care of the rest of your life. And then you see them find their niche in life and what they're what they're probably supposed to be doing and be very successful at it. That's how I felt with Sam. But it was still very, very stressful. Like I said, I did five months in, in a rehab and I didn't even drink. And uh, so sometimes, sometimes it was tough. Uh, I hope you have a couple more minutes because I, I want to. Out of time you want, brother. <laughs> um, I, I was, again, watching a lot of things before this. And so I watched people tell stories, Jeff Garland. Uh, old comedians just telling stories about Sam, but I, I Joe Rogan mentioned this, and as I as he said it, I, I thought, wow, that that's pretty interesting. Joe's kind of a kind of a guy that people really respect, and he said, you know, the man changed comedy. He really did. And as I think back, you know, Richard Pryor changed comedy. George Carlin changed comedy. Sam Kinison changed comedy. I mean, there was no one doing what Sam was doing. And then it became, you could be foul mouth. You could, I mean, really get after it. You could really tell some stories from the road. Um, what a legacy, right? I mean, that's got to be great. To, and for me to think, as you can go back to watch YouTube, there's been documentaries. You wrote a great book. It's just great to know that, that, that this, you know, this happened in 1992. We lost Sam. And we're 30 years later, still kind of just reminiscing about him. That has to make you feel good. It, uh, it amazes me. Uh, next year will be 30 years. And he has a, I, I describe it as a cult following of millions of people that, uh, that every year on the anniversary of his death, Every year I go, I'm not going to, I'm not going to post anything. It's been, you know, this year was 29 years. I'm not going to post anything. And then it, it's so many there that I feel compelled. I've got to say something. And when I do like this year, I did, we must've had 
uh, 3,000 comments uh, just on a Facebook post. And, uh, and, I, and I do feel like that, that Sam uh, changed comedy. I remember Dice Clay was uh, promoting on the Arsenio Hall show, he was promoting uh, Ford Fairlane. A movie, his first movie, I think he's coming out with. And on there, you know, typical Dice style, uh, he was going to win a Grammy. I mean, I win an Oscar for it. Uh, he'll go down as the greatest actor to ever perform, and he's the greatest stand up comedian that has ever lived. And uh, I'm watching it at my house. Sam's watching it at his house. He calls me right in the middle of it. Said, tell Arsenio I'll come on next week. Well, Arsenio and him had been on the outs. They'd actually gotten a short fist fight. And uh, so they'd been on the outs. I called Arsenio and I said, hey, we've been watching. We watched Dice on your show tonight. Sam wants to come on next week. Arsenio goes, yeah, man. Great. And we were good friends. He was also son of a preacher in Cleveland. And uh, said, great. We'll do it next week. Well, Sam comes on, and, and where it all originated was, I had come up with this idea. Uh, Sam and, and Dice really didn't like each other. That wasn't an act. They really didn't like each other. And uh, But I'm always thinking about business, so I'm thinking, why don't we put them out on tour together? Make it like WWF. They're never at the venue at the same time. They don't do an interview together because I didn't know what would happen if they did. Uh, you know, wherever wherever say, uh, the one is the strongest, which I felt like Sam was the strongest anywhere, but wherever, East Coast will have Dice uh, come on last and, and get out in the Midwest and West will have Sam come on last. And so I had projected on a, a uh, 12-city tour I had projected that they would each make uh, roughly about $7 million each. And so I, at first I got to sell Sam on it, which was no easy pitch. But I finally sell Sam on it. He's at my house. So I said, well, you're going to have to talk to Dice. And he goes, uh, we'll see. So he's sitting there and I call Dice. And I had to tell him about it. And uh, so Dice is like, uh, uh, is Sam there? I said, yeah. I said, well, let's talk. Him and I need to talk. So we get on there. Well, so, well Dice had been good friends with our younger brother, Kevin, that was murdered. And uh, and so it starts off with, uh, you know, man, I tried to, uh, I tried to, come up to you at the forum and tell you how bad I felt about Kevin and you blew me off. Well, Sam goes, well, man, I was driving on sunset and I pulled up next to you and you blew me off. Then it got into the routine, you know, Hey man, uh, you know, Sam tell him which dice did, but that's my opinion. Uh, you know, you, you, you stole some, some of my routines. They start going over the routines and, and Dice is going, I was doing that in, in 83. And Sam goes, I was doing it in 78. <laughs> so this is not this is not going well. So after they get through yelling at each other and everything, give me back the phone. And so I go, Dice, I said, uh, talk it over with your dad because everybody, 
everybody knew that Dice's dad, you know, had great influence and basically made most of the decisions for Dice. And I said, uh, you know, talk it over with your dad. I mean, you guys don't have to be buddies. You can tell the media how you feel about each other, everything else. Let's just fill some arenas and make some money. And so he goes, okay, I'll talk, I'll talk to my dad and uh, I'll call you back. We well, never did call me back. First time I hear anything about it is on the Arsenio Hall show. And Arsenio brings up, which he had to get from guys because I hadn't talked to anyone. And I'm sure Sam didn't. He brings up that, uh, hey, I heard you and Sam Kennison uh, maybe going to work together. And so Dice goes, yeah, yeah, you know, he uh, he called me and wanted to open for me. But I told him I work I work alone and everything. Well, none of that was true. None of that. And uh, so now Sam comes on the next week. And and uh, he comes out there. And it also had come out that uh, Dice was not Italian. That his real name was Silverstein. <laughs> Remember that. Andrew Silverstein. And this is the first time he's getting up and acknowledging that. Not that I think it would have made any difference, except he had pushed himself off as Italian. And so he gets up, and if you, I don't know if you ever seen the episode or anything, it's on YouTube, but he gets up and he steps over to the front of the stage and is almost crying, you know, let me tell you who Andrew Dice Silverstein really is. He's a guy that came out to L.A. and busted his ass. Blah, 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 blah. And he's almost crying. Sam comes out. The next week. And uh, so Dice, I mean, Arsenio is asking him questions. He asked him about Dice. So Sam gets up, gets up and goes to the very spot that, that Dice did and goes, let me tell you who Andrew Dice Silverstein really is. He's a guy that came to L.A., stole my, my routines, stole uh, Fonzie's jacket and Stallone's attitude. Yeah! And goes back and sits down. And I think, well, okay, I guess that project is probably dead. And uh, but he makes a statement there. The reason I said all this is to, a statement he made. And uh, Arsenio brings up that Dice said he's the best stand-up comedian ever in history. And so uh, he asked Sam what he thought about it. And Sam just made a genius statement. I thought he said, "Comedy." is like a rainbow. And if you're really good and you're really lucky, you get to be a shade in that rainbow. There is no best. There's no greatest. You get to be a shade in the comedy rainbow. And I just thought, man, that was just the greatest statement I'd ever heard about, you know, this, who's the greatest comedians. And Richard Pryor was a Sam's influence. And an interesting thing is, is that uh, Richard and, and Sam and I all grew up in the same projects in Peoria, Illinois, but we didn't know each other until Sam had made it. But when Sam was on his honeymoon with his first wife, they went to the comedy store to see a show on their honeymoon. And they sat right down front and Richard Pryor was on stage. And Sam... Just enamored with him. Sam comes back off his honeymoon and he we're together and he goes, he tells me, you know, he went to they went out to Hollywood and he went to the comedy store and he sat down on stage. Now he's still a preacher. And he said, and I was sitting there thinking, I could do that. I could do that. But he doesn't get out of the ministry for another three years. But I think that 
I think that that kind of Richard put that spark in him that he wanted to be a comedian and, and he could do that. I think that's where that all started. Yeah, I love the Peoria, Illinois. Well, St. Louis, Missouri is where I am from, so it's three hours up north. I've been to Peoria many times, and I always, I, I really do where think. You, where are you from? St. Louis, Missouri. So. Oh yeah. Yeah, been I, there many times. So anytime I've been to Peoria five, six, anytime I think about it, I think, man, Richard Pryor grew up here, and then I, I really had no idea. I always thought you, Sam, and the whole family were Texans, but uh, I realized there's a lot of Peoria, Illinois, in you guys. You grew up in Illinois, Peoria, Illinois. A um, couple more questions. I, I have to ask you about the the bad, you know, the awful night in, in April of '92. Um, I had always thought that he had sort of kind of cleaned up, right? I mean, he got married five days before things were going well, right? Like he he was he was uh, he was doing well. Tell me about just that last couple months there, because it seemed like things were were going well. Um, you were in a van, I guess, behind uh, Sam's car. Just tell me a little bit about that night. And I think, I mean, you've told the story a million times, but I, I think it's it's good to hear the the final thoughts of Sam as he was as talking to someone, right? And it's just an amazing story. If you don't mind sharing that with me a little bit about how he was doing, he was doing well, and just the, the, those thoughts he was having at the very end of his life. Sam uh, had been clean for a year and a half. And when I you know, make that motion. Uh, what I mean is, is that uh, he he partied every night for 12 years, every night. The last year and a half of his life, uh, he cleaned up. He had hit rock bottom. He had $300. Uh, I was going to quit. And, uh, and for the first time, he told me, he said, I got a problem. I said, all right, well, we can't, we can't take you off the road. You have to make money. But uh, I said, there's a place called Log Cabin out in Malibu. You give up your apartment in L.A. You live in your house in Malibu. And every morning that we're in town, you're in their AA meeting. It's celebrities only. You're in that AA meeting. If you miss one, I quit. And so uh, he did. I said, I, I, if, you're, if you're out of it, you still show up. If you... If you've been up all night, you still show up. And he did. He did. And he met a lot of comedians. I mean, a lot of uh, uh, celebrities there. Ozzy Osbourne and him became good friends from that that meeting. And uh, and so he was, when I say basically clean, uh, for the last year and a half, maybe once out of every three or four nights, maybe one night, You know, he'd party for one night. And that would be it. So when I say clean for the last year and a half, Sam used to have, he used to get up on stage and and tell everybody, you know, uh, uh, I've been clean for 81 days or whatever it would be. I remember 81 days. And the crowd would just go nuts. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then he'd go, well, not all in a row. <laughs> and, <laughs> I remember that. I do. And, uh, Everything and so uh, he had, he had cleaned up and and then it got around about uh, Christmas time. I started noticing uh, different things. Uh, we did a show in uh, actually in Austin, Texas, which I live in San Antonio now, and just up the road here we did a show in Austin, Texas. And uh, the next morning we had to 
we had to catch a like a six o'clock flight in the morning or he's going to have to charter a plane. And so I remember I got up, I went up to a suite and, uh, and he was up and he's crying. He hadn't been drinking or anything. He just, he's very emotional. And I asked him what was going on. And I had a daughter, I have a daughter uh, named Ginger and uh, Sam just loved her. He just, he just loved her. And uh, so what's going on? And he goes, no, man, I've, I've just been thinking. And I go, what make, What do you think about making you so emotional? And he goes, uh, I don't have a ginger. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> Usually only one to a person here. Uh, what, 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 what are you talking about? And he goes, man, you got something to live for. You got ginger. I don't have a ginger. And so I didn't know what to, you know, what to tell him and everything. And so I'm like, well, dude, we got to, we got to get in this limo. We got to get home or you're not going to make it for Christmas because there's no other flights. And, uh, and he goes, no, I just uh, said, you go ahead and you go ahead and go on and, and leave the security guy with me and we'll, we'll manage to get there. And somehow he did. I don't know. But he managed to uh, to fly in later. And so that was the first thing. And then uh, just before his wedding and stuff, he uh, we had a meeting. I had, had had a deal set. All we had to do was wrap it up with New Line Cinema, a three-movie deal, one with Arnold Schwarzenegger, one with Rick Moranis, and then an in-concert uh, movie. And uh, so they wanted to meet Sam you know, as they always do. And so we're in this big conference room and there's, I don't know, probably a half dozen of them and myself and uh, our attorney and Sam. In the middle of it, he just gets up and goes, you know what? It sounds good to me if you all can work it out with my brother. Uh, we're in business and leaves. So they're, you know, after he leaves, they're like, Bill, is he, is he, cool with this? Does he want to do this? And I thought, yeah, yeah. He's just, you know, we've been working our ass off and stuff. He's, uh, you know, he's really tired. But I'm mystified by it. And the other thing is, if Sam ever needed an excuse to party, this was going to be it. And so I remember on the way home, I called him. And uh, so I go, Sam, what the hell just happened in there? And he said, well, I was sitting there and I was thinking, that uh, I've attained every goal that I set when I got into show business. And I was thinking, I've got to, uh, I got to set some new goals. And, uh, and so I said, so you get up and walk out in the middle of a meeting because you got to set some new goals. And he goes, uh, well, yeah, you take care of the business. You, you're going to know if we get a good deal or not and everything else. So I thought, no need for me to sit anymore. But I thought that was really unusual. And then, uh, oh, there's a few other things. But on that particular day, uh, he had got married. They went over to Hawaii. And uh, they flew back, took a red eye back. They're supposed to get on a plane, fly to Vegas. Laughlin would have a, uh, a limo waiting and would bring him down to Laughlin. I rented a van and I had the opening act and, uh, and the security guy 
with me and I rented the van because I want to come home after the show on Sunday. I don't want to wait around till Monday because it's only 240 miles. I wanted to come home. And, uh, well, I get a call. Uh, first it's from his wife and she's not happy. And, uh, so I, she's telling, tell me different stuff. And so I go, where's Sam at? She goes, he's there. So Sam gets on there and, and, uh, so I go, hey, brother, what, what's, what's going on? And he goes, ah, man, you know, we've been together seven years and we get married and she thinks everything changes, but it's not. It's still, still just like it was for seven years. And he said, don't worry about her. I'll take care of what's the plan. So I told him, you know, you, you get on this plane. Uh, it actually was a charter, charter over and, uh, and I'll meet at Laughlin. And, and then I explained to him that uh, while he had been on his vacation, because I hadn't been able to talk to him, that I'd wrapped up the three movie deal. We also wrapped up his own uh, television sitcom on Fox called the Sam Kennison Family Entertainment Hour which was really kind of like the old Jackie Gleason uh, variety show, not the Honeymooners, but the variety show. Uh, also, I had wrapped up a new three-year deal with uh, uh, the, the uh, oh, I can't think of the big hotel now, there in Las Vegas. Uh, and so this was, this was our last casino town to get a deal in. And the reason we were going there Sam pick up some chump change and, uh, and I'll sign the contracts and we have a three-year deal there, which would wrap up all of our casino towns. Our plan was to do movies, do television, do maybe a 12 city tour in the summer and play the casinos. Cause they were the easiest things in the world to play. You go upstairs, you come down, you do a show for 40 minutes because they want them back out on the floor. You go back upstairs and you do whatever you want to do. Easiest gig in the world for a lot of money. So we, uh, he tells me that he's uh, changed his mind. He wants to drive. So I said, all right. Then I said, we'll meet in Barstow at this McDonald's. It's like a train. And so when we did, we met there. Then we talked over some stuff. And then he told me uh, uh, he was going to go back to the ministry. In May, and this was this was April the second. My parents had a uh, a big convention in their church every May in Tulsa. And he said, "I'm going to go back in the ministry." And so I go, Sam, this isn't something you can f around with. You know, this is we have a brother Richard that's still in the ministry. Your know, mom and and dad are pastoring in Tulsa. This is this, this isn't something. They said, "No, man." I'm going to go back to preaching. He said, I wasn't any good the first time. And he said, I think now I know how to handle a crowd. I know what, I know how to work a stage and everything. I think, I think I could really do well. So I said, okay. Then when we get through with all this, we'll talk about it. And uh, so got in our vehicles. He was driving his uh, special edition Trans Am and, um, we're driving over there. Well, the last exit before we get to River Road, which is a two-lane road that goes up to Laughlin, was. I don't I don't even know if it's still there now. But uh, it's about 25 miles uh, to Laughlin. Uh, he has to get gas, so we pull off. And uh, so we're getting 
uh, he's getting gas. I got plenty of gas, but he's getting gas. And uh, until we start talking, I told him, I said, I think I'm going to uh, get rid of our booking agent, get another booking agent. So I think we've used up this guy's contacts. And so it's like, dude, we've only had him for a few months. And I go, it's, 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 it's the most expendable part of the business. Don't worry. Don't worry. And he goes, well, you know what you're doing. And I, so to make him feel better, I said, Robin Williams, one time he, he fired three booking agents in one month. So I said, but I just think, I think it'd be better for us to get some new contacts. So he says, all right. Then he gets to talking and, uh, and so then all of a sudden he goes, uh, had the guys empty out my, uh, my car. And I'm going, we're 25 miles from Laughlin. Well, yeah, yeah, I want it, but I want everything taken out. I want everything taken out, put it in the van. So I said, all right. So I tell him, you know, get everything out of the car and put it in the van. He had this dog that was totally untrained called Russo. And, uh, Sam never went anywhere without this, this freaking dog. Totally untrained. And uh, so he said, take Russo. So I'm like, why are we taking the dog? So I just, I, I, I don't want him in the car. I want him to get in the van. So I said, all right. And so then when we get, get through and we got in our vehicles, he pulled out in front of me, which he never, ever did. He always followed me. He pulled out in front of me, and uh, we got on River Road. He went 3.2 miles and was uh, hit head on by this kid uh, in a pickup. And uh, I slid the van, which I have to explain. We could see a pickup, you know, on up the road because of kind of a little climb for us, not much, but a little bit. It's dusk. We could see this pickup passing all these cars on the in the other lane. And so I'm talking to Sam, but he obviously can't hear me. But I'm going, you know, Sam, watch out for this guy. You know, watch out for this guy. Let him get back in time line. Slow down, slow down. And Sam's like he's hearing me. Uh, he slows down to about 15 miles an hour. At the last second, this pickup gets back in line. What we didn't see was there was his buddy in another pickup behind him that were passing the same cars. And uh, so we added just a fraction of a second of relief. Uh, whew, and bam, there's the other pickup. Uh, they hit head on and uh, there was no contest for Sam, but I slid the van next to the door. The security guy gets out of the uh, van, runs right there to the car, which is just a few feet away. And uh, he can't get the door open. So I guess the adrenaline in me, I jerked the door open and Sam is sitting in the seat. He's leaning over on the armrest. The steering wheel is is gone. Uh, I can see he's hit his head in on the windshield, but he's only got four little scratches. Look like with somebody's fingernails on his uh, forehead. And, uh, and that's it. So, but I know he's hurt. I don't, I don't know. He's, I, none of us knew he was dying. And so I jerk open the door and he's sitting there and, uh, and he starts telling me why, why now? And I'm telling him, Sam, just lay still. We got help on the way, but I don't know if we do because I haven't been able to get any service on my phone. So I grabbed his phone 
I'm going just just lay still. We got help on the way. Don't move. Just stay here. And he just keeps telling me why. Why now? Why now, brother? And uh, so I said, let me check on everybody. I'll be right back. But you stay right here. And so I go around the other side and Malika is uh, passed out. And uh, but it seems like her pulse is strong. And so I go to this kid and uh, because people were saying there's gas all over the the ground there and and uh, he can't get out of his truck. He's got a guy with him, a kid with him. So I jerked the door open and uh, he's a pretty he's a football player, pretty good sized guy. So he gets out of the truck and he goes around to the front of the truck and goes, oh, look what he did to my effing truck, man. So I grab him by the collar and I go, hey, come here. So I pull him down. And I said, I want you to look at this guy because you're probably going to be working for him the rest of your life. Now, take your ass over here and sit down on the side of the road. So he does. Well, I go to Sam and uh, he is, he's been scooting to get out of this car. Well, he weighs 280 pounds. And so he gets to the edge and I realized we can't keep him in the car. So we, uh, so myself and uh, a couple of the bystanders, we, you know, lift him down out of the car and we just lay him right there on the, on the highway. Now his uh, opening act, which used to be his best friend, uh, he has a little different story than I do. And when I ask him about it, he goes, well, we have different memories. Well, mine are, ingrained in me the rest of my life. Uh, but anyway, we laying there. No one is holding him because I'm afraid that if he's got, you know, injuries to his spine or his neck or something, we could paralyze him. So we just laying there and I'm, I'm standing there and I've got both of his phones and, uh, on my phone and his phone, I'm calling 911. I can't get any response. First thing that catches my eye is this dog that ordinarily would be gone. All the doors open on this van. He is, he's got his rear paws on the seat, his front paws on the dash, and he's looking out over, looks like over Sam's head, and he's just looking. Now I'm thinking, that's, that's weird. Well, then Sam all of a sudden starts saying, I don't want to die. And, uh, but it's not like he's, he's, uh, afraid. It's like he's trying to negotiate with someone. You know, someone, you know, tell him it's time for you to go or something. He goes, I don't want, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And before any of us can respond, all of a sudden he just goes, Okay. 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 And that was it. He was gone. So I, I asked if anyone else knew CPR. And uh, so uh, this kid said, said he did. I said, okay, come over here and give him uh, compressions and I'll give him out the mouth. But I couldn't even get the uh, phlegm out of his mouth to give him out the mouth. He was gone. He was gone. Now, uh, the opening act, uh, his story, he was holding Sam and uh, was talking to him. The truth of the matter is, 
him and the security guy were down the road about 30 feet. The security guy had tore off the sleeves off of his shirt, made a bandana, and they're just freaking out. They're just freaking out. And so I tell them, I go down there and I, and I put an arm around each of them. And I go, hey, guys, I want you to do something. I want you to clean out everything in Sam's car. And uh, the police are there. The paramedics are there, but the paramedics have pretty much, without ever telling me, let me know, you know, he's gone. And so I'm going, I want everything, every little thing that's in that car, I want it, I want it out of there. Because once it got to the tow yard, I figured somebody's going to go through it and have mementos of Sam's. And so, uh, and so they did. And that was, that was the real story of what went on at the highway. Never got up and walked around. Uh, the only conversations he had was what I told you. And uh, that was the way it was. Just and it's a- weird how that, you know, you're, I know he's gone. You know, the paramedic that's working on him, I'd got down on, on one knee and he's working on the other. And they've stuck that thing down his throat. He's trying to do whatever. And so I remember looking at him and going, uh, are we doing any good? And he just looked at me, never didn't shake his head yes, no, didn't say anything. He just looked at me. And I knew with that look that he was gone. I get to the hospital and I've got the coroner and the head of the hospital uh, there. I read it, rode in the ambulance with Malika behind Sam. And uh, we get there and I come in and I remember the, the uh, coroner telling me, we need you to sign some papers. And I said, I'm not I'm not signing anything until I know how my brother is. Brad, I know he's dead. But somehow that is not translating <laughs> from my heart to my head. It's not translating. And uh, and so uh, he goes, uh, we, we declared him expired at, I think it was 732. And so I said, okay, uh, what happened to him? And he said, uh, well, we won't know until we have an autopsy, but I think he probably has a broken neck and everything. Then they were really, really generous. And, you know, the president's telling me, uh, my office is your office as long as as you need it. Take care of whatever business you want and everything else. Well, my next call is, is to my wife. We have a community theater here and uh, we're doing, uh, oh, man. I can't, I can't remember the play now, but there's a line in it. My, my granddaughter, I mean, my daughter's playing uh, Little June in it. And there's a line in it that says, uh, I want to dedicate this show to my Uncle Sam, talking about, you know, the United States. Uncle Sam, at that moment, well, first I call Sherry, and, and for the first time in my life, I'm stuttering. I can't, I can't hardly get the words out, and I'm trying to tell her. You know, that Sam, we've been in an accident and Sam's dead. While I'm talking to her, all the electricity goes out in the theater at the very moment that my daughter goes, ladies and gentlemen, I dedicate this song or this show to my Uncle Sam. And uh, all the lights go out. Then they come back on. And so there was just a lot of weird stuff, Brad. I'm not into, uh, you know, into that weird stuff that, 
there were strange things that happened that kind of, I think Sam had a premonition. Something was going to happen to him. And, uh, and it did. Well, it feels uh, oddly peaceful. Uh, I have to say, and I appreciate you recollecting that story. I'm curious. You mentioned, uh, the standup comedian with him was Carl LeBeau. Did you ever get a chance to make up with him? He has just recently passed with cancer. Did you ever have a chance to sort of have any sort of you know, reconciliation at all with him? Uh, Carl was uh, was Sam's best friend. They made a deal down in Houston that whoever made it first would help the other one. And Sam was a very loyal guy. Uh, they had a situation that, that happened uh, that I won't go into about uh, three months before uh, Sam died that... Uh, that destroyed that friendship. Sam Sam literally wanted to just whip him, and uh, Sam, uh, he took off up north to a uh, a little town. I can't remember it, and basically was hiding out. You know, afraid Sam was gonna gonna beat him to death, and uh, so that friendship was was dissolved. Uh, on this particular trip, the reason he was there is he called me and told me I'm 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 out of money, and uh, would Sam let me go to Laughlin? And so I said, "Hey, dude, you know I ask him, I'll ask him, but I mean that's that's you you and his deal." So I call Sam and I tell him, "Said, hey, just got a call from Carl, and he wants to uh, he's out of money." And he wants to know if he can open for you in Laughlin. Well, Sam paid him good money. Sam paid him 5000 a show and expenses. And uh, so Sam, you know, in language I won't use, lets me know, no, he's not going. So I said, hey, that's up to you, dude. I'm just, I'm just asking you. Uh, because he called and asked me, I don't care if you take him or you don't take him. It's irrelevant to me. So we hang up. Sam calls me right back. I mean, in just a probably in five minutes, he calls me back and said, uh, no, no, he can go. But here's the deal. We don't talk to each other. We don't see each other. He's never on stage with me. If I go downstairs and he's downstairs and sees me, he goes back upstairs. If I walk into a bar or into a restaurant and he's there, he leaves. That's the deal. So I called Carl, and uh, and I said, I talked to Sam. Here's the deal. So so Carl goes, okay, well, that's why he was in the van with me, is that Sam didn't want to see him, didn't want to talk to him. Well, after, after Sam died, uh, I didn't have any special allegiance to, to Carl. I mean, we were friends, but I mean, we weren't, you know, brothers like him and Sam were. And, uh, so I thought, you know, out of, out of loyalty to, to Sam, I'll, you know, I'll try to keep an eye on him. So I give him a car. I uh, went on a golfing trip to Hawaii with a bunch of my friends from the club and, and I paid for him to go, 
and to go. And I had season tickets at the Anaheim Ducks hockey. And I'd call him and, and he would bring his girlfriend and, and we would go to the uh, hockey games. And, but the relationship was always, you know, a little, little strange. And, uh, then I called him one, one day and I go, Hey, you, do you want to go to the hockey game tonight? And he goes, uh, yeah, yeah, we want to go, but, uh, you, you can't bring up Sam. And so I go, Carl, Sam is the only bond you and I have. We don't have any other bond other than, than Sam. And I'm not going out with anyone that Sam's name can't be mentioned. So, so just, for, just forget it. And uh, he also would never do any projects that I was involved in. I, I produced three different documentaries. Uh, every time they asked Carl to be part of it, be interviewed or whatever, no. When I wrote the book, I personally asked Carl, do you want to be involved in writing this book? No. And so uh, he changed his name from Carl to C.D. LeBeau, like nobody's going to know who he was. And he wanted to sever every identification he had with Carl. He wouldn't go on the Howard Stern show because Howard, he said, all he would want to do is talk about Sam. So the only first and only time I know that he was on there was years later. And uh, I get a call from Gary and says, uh, Gary says, uh, Carl's on the show. And I go, really? Because this has been, well, I've been five, six years. And I said, he said, yeah. I said, man, he's saying some weird stuff. And I said, like, what? And he said, well, he said that his daughter is actually Sam's daughter. Well, this girl is 16 years old at this point. And so he said, do you want to come on? I go, no, I don't want to come on. I don't want to be part of that. And so uh, I've, I somehow managed to get her phone number. And the day or two after that, I called her. And, uh, and we talked and, and I said, uh, I guess you heard of, uh, heard that Carl said you're Sam's daughter. And she said, yeah, I heard it on the radio. I said, and that's the first time that you've heard that or whatever. And she said, yeah. And so I, I was really upset with him. Uh, the only time, the last time he had seen her, she was six years old. We were playing Atlantic City, and his ex-wife called me and said, uh, uh, I think Carl should see his daughter. And so I made him go to this mall. I gave him a couple hundred bucks to take her for a couple hours and buy her stuff. That's the last time he's seen her. He never paid a dime of child support. Unbeknownst to me, that up until Sam died, he paid the child support. So I think he knew, but I had, I had no idea. And so I kept calling her and, and, uh, you know, to be checking on her and everything. And, uh, when I eventually trying to think, 
I remember I remember where the real divide came as I was doing uh, I was promoting something something I had done on different radio stations and I remember I, I was on a radio station in Chicago question came up uh, what's the what's going on with uh, you and uh, Lebo- Carl and the uh, Kennison family so I don't know I haven't heard anything that's going on I said yeah I said he was on here man and really trashing you so I'm like okay all right so we go on finish never comes up we hang up I remember I called Philadelphia and I'm doing an interview there same thing comes up so I told the guy I said hey when you go to break hang on I want to talk to you and so uh, he he does and so I go what what is going on uh-oh. We're good. There you are. So what's going on, man? Why am I getting all these this stuff about problems with Carl and, and me? And he said, man, he was on here, and he just trashing you. And, and I go, what's he saying? And uh, he said, well, he he was saying that uh, you, uh, you conspired with his ex-wife to uh, hide this child. And I go, do you really think anybody cares if Sam had a daughter? I said seriously, and uh, and he told me a few other. I don't even remember them now, but a few other things that you know he was saying. So I called Carl. I go, hey, is there something you want to tell me? And uh, so he goes, you know, man, Sam destroyed every every person's life that touched him. And I go, well, I don't know. I seem to be doing pretty well. Said, you know, I can't help that you, I told you two years before he died to start booking gigs and stuff because Sam first was going in a different direction of his, of his career. And second, with his party and stuff, you never knew. You never knew if he was, was going to pass. And, uh, and so he was like, uh, well, man, let's just let bygones be God bygones. And I was like, whatever. And uh, so then I don't remember, just, you know, three or four times it was let bygones be bygones. Well, last time I seen him, I did a wedding renewal in uh, Las Vegas for a couple of friends. And they're also friends with Carl. And they said, you know, Carl's going to be there. I said, I don't care. Doesn't, doesn't bother me at all. And uh, so he was there. Well, this lady comes up at when we're outside taking pictures. And she comes up and said, can I have a picture with you and Carl? And I go, no. And so, and, then, you know, and I just walk away. Well, Sherry, my wife comes up and she goes, Bill, that's Karen, which was Carl's sister-in-law. And I knew Larry and, and Karen. I really liked them. And, uh, but she didn't look like I remembered her. And so I went, Karen, Karen, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take, I'll take a picture uh, with you and Carl. And so I took the pictures and then he, uh, he came over, same speech, you know, man, you know, I, I just want, I just want to let the past be past. And I go, Carl, I'm tired of the past being past. Every time you do this is let the past be past. I said, you're just not in my world anymore. 
and I don't care to have a relationship with you, anything else. And he said, well, I'm, I just want you to know, man, I'm in a really good place now. I've got, I've got things straightened out and I'm really in a good place. And I said, well, I'm happy for you. But I said, no, I don't think we're ever going to have the relationship we, we had before. And I walked away. That's my last time I seen him as last, uh, words that we actually spoke to each other. Now, just a matter of two or three months that uh, I found out that he uh, had terminal cancer. And so, uh, I didn't have his phone number. I called uh, Karen and, uh, and I was having to come to Vegas to do my, my niece's funeral. And, uh, and so I told Karen, I said, tell Carl, if you would like, I would like to, I'd like to stop by and sit down and, and talk with him. And, uh, and so, uh, it was weeks later. She finally called me back and said, I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't call you back. And so Carl said that, uh, uh, he wasn't feeling good and everything, but I think it really was, you know, and uh, looking back, I think the reason he never did any of the, any of the, uh, projects that we were involved in, but, uh, is because his stories were totally different than, than my reflection, not only out on the highway, on, on anything and he could not say those kind of those kind of things if I'm there you know because he knew that I, w- I would call him on it and so uh, uh, I I felt bad for the family uh, that's a rough rough way to go I felt bad that uh, he went through that but uh you know, he didn't, he didn't care to uh, be my friend. And, uh, I, you know, in my heart, I forgave him, but I just didn't want to be in that position, uh, again. Then I saw people were sending me interviews he had done in the last few months while it, just before he's dying. And so one of them was, is what, uh, I told you had happened out on the road that highway, on the highway that day. And uh, somehow he had turned that completely around and everything that I did, he did. And I guess I was nowhere around. And that really ticked me off, Brad. That really ticked me off. I'm thinking, man, Sam's been gone for 29 years. He paid this guy thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. He paid his rent so he could live next door to him in Malibu on the beach. He bought him new cars. Uh, they had these scenes, and out of it, uh, I did. And I was the one, by the way, that took the DNA test for the girl that she is Sam's daughter. I, you know, I wasn't trying to hide it. At first, I thought if she is, she needs to know. And, uh, but I'm thinking for 29 years. He couldn't let let Sam rest for 29 years. That's why I went, you know, before I would never, you know, whatever his story was, I'd be, yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Then after that, I was like, no, and I'm not covering, I'm not covering up. You know, if, if he can hold that for 29 years, then no, no. Well, I guess he, you know, in his final days, he was, as a comedians do, they took another 
person's joke or another person's story. That's <laughs> uh, what they do. But it wasn't even, it wasn't even him taking my story. It was just that it all of a sudden, and it wasn't just that interview. It was, it was like, well, now I understood because I could never understand why he would never be in, in any projects where he would get some publicity. And then it, all of a sudden it was like, bam, this has been there the whole time. Why didn't they ever see that? The reason was he didn't want to, didn't want me to be there to go, no, no, no. Like I said, there was one time that I asked him about, you know, his story about what happened on the highway. And I go, Carl, that's, that's not why, what happened. Why, why are you saying that? And he said, well, we, we all have different memories. <laughs> and I go, well, I think my memories are pretty exact. That happened to be my brother. And I can, talking to you today, um, over 29 years later, I can tell you in detail. I can tell you about the the little farmhouse off on the side of the road. I can tell you what that, I still remember exactly how that, the gravel and everything looked on that road. Uh, that was one of those things I'll never, you know, forget the rest of my life. Yeah. And so, uh, anyway, yeah, I, well, it goes on for some of us. I gotta say though, I've really enjoyed this. Um, just thinking about Sam and and, and this, you living with you know him and and just these stories. Hopefully, it was cathartic a little bit, maybe to have some conversations. But I, Bill, I really appreciate this. I know people can go watch you do your thing on Sundays. We went long, but I, I hope people really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, anything else you'd like me to add before we say goodbye to everybody today? No, you've been you've been fantastic. I think I probably talked a little too much. You didn't get to say much. But uh, I've enjoyed it, and anytime you'd like me to come on, I'll be happy to do that. Yeah, well, I'm sure that I have a million. And, and I don't say that with all interviews, by the way. Well, I appreciate that. And I have a million more questions, as always, but we'll see. Maybe we'll do this again in six months. But uh, no, people want to hear you, Bill, not me. So I, I appreciate that. But I thank Bill for joining me today here on Here's the Pitch. Again, sponsored by Masses Restaurants in St. Louis. Five locations, stlmasses.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs>